Chapter 25 of Juggernaut, A Veiled Record. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Juggernaut, A Veiled Record by George Carey Eggleston and Dolores Marborg. Chapter 25 Do you see Bogart and Mrs. Stevens? Gladys Grayson drops the question into Helen's ear as she stands listlessly leaning against the conservatory entrance. Everett is looking away for the moment. Gladys has come up with Dalzell, the young congressman. Helen looks at her inquiringly. Bogart and Mrs. Stevens? Where? Mrs. Grayson gives a silvery little laugh and just lifts her eyebrows everywhere with a comprehensive wave of her pretty hand everett and dalzell are talking together helen looks a little bewildered and mrs grayson looks a little amused and a good deal contemptuous or shocked perhaps she nods towards the conservatory and at the moment a man and woman come from the shadow of a palm towards the quartet engrossed in conversation at least bogart is mrs stevens is engrossed in looking charming gladys continues a little spasmodic asides every one in the room they are nearer and she lowers her voice is talking about it it is disgraceful what why the very apparent affair between them helen stares then looks at mrs stevens Gladys says under her breath, between her teeth, "'Don't stare at her in that way, you goose. She will come over here in a minute and ask if the enamel on her neck is chipping.' Helen lowers her eyes. Gladys continues, "'Things are so very apparent, you know.' Mrs. Stevens is coming leisurely toward them. "'There is a story of a little dinner.' Mrs. Stevens is here. Gladys bows with her accustomed hauteur, with which she meets everyone but the initiated, and without the suspicion of discourtesy in her manner, turns away on Dalzell's arm. Mrs. Stevens begins to talk volubly to Helen and Everett. Helen is disconcerted. She has none of the studied, courteous rudeness that is her friend's stock in trade, with which to carry off a thing of this kind gracefully she replies a little helplessly to mrs stevens and moves away as quickly as she can mrs stevens perceives the slight it amuses her a little later when she is alone with bogart she mentions it and remarks that those ingenue try one's patience terribly bogart says yes and thinks but they are delicious to teach Everett seldom leaves Helen's side. When he is not with her, he is watching her. The house is too crowded for comfort, and Helen has not had enough experience yet to enjoy it. She always feels a little bewildered after one o'clock, and remarks to Everett as he stands by her while she leans back in a chair, wearily, that she always feels as though she ought to be in bed after eleven. She laughs, a sweet, excited little laugh, as she looks up at him. 
he wonders how long so charming a child will retain her naivete in such an atmosphere she delights him there is a simplicity about her manner and expression that fascinates him and yet she is a polished woman of the world she is surely that but the difference between herself and other women of the world is that she is not a worldly woman once during the evening brain is near her and says with suppressed elation you are charming tonight helen i have never seen you more beautiful everett is strongly attracted helen looks up quickly she says with a little deprecation in her tone and a little entreaty in her eyes he only admires me as he does other nice-looking women ed indeed you need not mind i will keep out of his way if you don't like it brain listens at first in surprise then bursts into a low happy laugh he covertly presses her hand and says as he moves away to make room for everett who is coming with an ice for helen i don't mind i assure you you needn't take pains to keep out of his way i am perfectly satisfied with my wife i am delighted that this man is so interested as he is only be cautious dear don't let it be too obvious to others you understand helen does not understand but everett is at her side and she has to turn to him and say something or listen to him her mind runs on brain's few words and they trouble her while she answers the question of this one and that and makes trite witty serious politic or straightforward little speeches as one case or another demands she is turning over brain's words in her mind perhaps everett is one who can be of service to edgar and he thinks it is well for her to be civil she is a little piqued at his last words be cautious don't let it be too apparent to others as though she were likely to permit an aggression on everett's part more quickly in private than she would in public it wounds her a little that he should have said so thoughtless a thing it would be terrible if he thought so horrible a thing as she sees brain from time to time in the crowd she notices that the worried anxious expression she has noted for the last week is no longer on his face he is charming tonight his personality has never so strongly impressed her or apparently other people either everett notices how her glance follows brain's flexile figure that is full of strength and dignity and once remarks with a smile and a little amusement in his tone you are a great admirer of your husband she looks up at him and says quite innocently i love him everett's smile becomes one of approval almost of tenderness at last she is near brain again and says a little wistfully may we not go home soon he looks at the flushed weary face beautiful in its ennui and excitement and says at once if you wish it and suddenly the desire possesses him to have her in the carriage alone quite to himself in his arms and he seems a little impatient while everett folds her wrap about her and is asking her which is her day 
Helen says with an airy little informality that she has no day for her friends. The days are theirs. As they step out into the cold air, Brain draws Helen's furs still closer about her throat. There is a tenderness and passion in his action that she has missed these last weeks. It delights her and causes the hot blood to surge over her face and neck, leaving her in a quivering little ecstasy for a moment after she is in the carriage. Brain, standing outside, is pushing her gown about her and pulling the rug over her lap as he directs the coachman, and Helen is saying in husky little trebles so that only he hears, Ed, Ed. Someone at this moment runs down the steps to say some nearly forgotten thing to Brain, and as he talks he is acknowledging Helen's little appeals by covert pressure of the hand that is inside the coupé. Finally he gets in and closes the door. As they roll away, Brain draws her into his arms. It seems to both that they have been waiting all night for this moment. After a time, Brain says, I have never loved you more than at this moment. I believe until tonight I have never fully realized how magnificent you are. You are not where you belong. You are not where you shall be. I want to see you there, nodding his head in the direction of the White House. Helen does not understand, but she is glad. He is excited. Every fiber of his being is responsive. He holds her hand in his and kisses it repeatedly, passionately. She laughs in a nervous, hysterical way and leans her head against him. She half sobs. I want to be here, Ed. This satisfies me. He presses her to him and answers, I am not satisfied for you. A little patience and you shall have all. There is nothing that we cannot accomplish together. I am ambitious. There is no reason why I should not be. Ambition is a worthy sentiment. Yes, I am ambitious for myself but it whets my appetite for the great things of earth when I see you as you have been tonight, when I hold you as I do now. Sometimes it half angers me when I see you lacking appreciation of yourself. You do not know your own value, child. Other people know it. You could be a power if you would. You must. I... He leans back to look at her. He has imparted something of his enthusiasm and intensity to her, and her fingers play nervously with the cords of her cloak. Her eyes gleam in the dusk. Brain notes every little detail about her, how the flash from an electric light makes the tiara in her hair sparkle, how white her hands look as they lie buried in the fur of the rug, how the little tendrils of hair cling to her neck. He thinks vehemently, How I love this woman! How I love this woman! They stop in front of the house, and they go silently up the steps. Both are thinking. Woolet opens the door for them, making a vain endeavor to appear dignified and wide awake, but it is sufficiently evident that he has been asleep in the hall. 
Helen goes directly up the stairs, and Braine passes on to the library, saying, I have a little work to do. I will be up in five minutes. Wait for me. Suzanne is asleep with her head on the dressing table. Helen says kindly, as the little plump thing makes an effort to wake up, Go to bed, child. I will look after myself tonight. Suzanne goes, and Helen stands a moment, looking at her reflection in the glass. She smiles at it. She says half aloud, Yes, I am very beautiful. I love beautiful things, with a nod at herself. She unfastens her gown, and it slips to the floor. She steps out of it. She takes the pins from her hair, and it falls over her shoulders with a little swish. Brain taps at the door. She calls, One moment, Ed. She throws about her the negligee in the chair and calls, Come in, adding, You didn't have much to do, as Brain enters the room. If I did, I didn't do it, with a little laugh. He throws himself into a chair by her dressing-room fire. After a moment he says, Come here, dear. Helen is brushing her hair at the mirror. She puts down the brush and goes over to him. He pulls her down beside him. For a moment they sit silently, cheek to cheek, looking into the fire together. Finally, Brain says in a low voice, I want to talk to you, dear, about about a business matter. He pauses. Helen smiles a little mistily. She does not know anything about business matters, but she would like to hear about anything if he tells it. She says, Well? Brain hesitates a moment, and then says, with a little effort to appear quite natural, I don't want to trouble you with details, dear, but I must, a little. I want you to help me in a difficult task, to help us, for this means everything to both. You believe in your husband, do you not, Helen? I will not answer that question, Ed. You can answer it yourself. She caresses his head gently and waits for him to go on. Well, I meant the question seriously enough. You know, I can do much but I wonder if you believe me capable of all I can do. You know how the newspaper talk of me as the wizard, because I have achieved very quickly things that most men find it difficult to achieve at all. They believe in me, but they would think me insane if I were to tell them of the plans I am going to tell you of. I wonder if your belief in me is enough firmer than theirs to let you share my ideas without distrusting my ability to make them facts?" He receives sufficient answer in a caress which has tears of joy in it. He muses a while, and then takes up his discourse at a different point. It is rather a dramatic story, I suppose, as ordinary people look at things. I was rolling barrels on the levee at Thebes not many years ago. I got my fingers in on the enterprise with my mind set on making myself felt, and I made the enterprise a power. I was not easily appalled, as I showed when I set out to make the noblest woman in the world my wife, to take, as all my own, 
the one perfect example of what God meant when he created woman. Here a long pause occurs on the monologue. When Hildreth thought to make me a serviceable tool for him and his millionaire partners to work with, I whipped out the combination in six or eight weeks, and I taught them once for all who was master by virtue of superior intellect, when they and I had occasion to work together in any matter. I was poor and needed wealth for the sake of the opportunity it gives. I set to work to achieve wealth, and in three months my name was good enough to stand alone in any bank from New York to San Francisco. I planned the systemizing of the railroad lines centering at Thebes, and created almost a new West by the operation, enriching a whole people. I decided to be a senator, with my party in an apparently hopeless minority, and I achieved the result with as much precision as if it had been merely the drawing of a straight line with a ruler. I have not been taking wine, dear, and I am not running over these things to boast of them. I care nothing whatever for what is behind me. I only say all this to show you what I mean when I say that from the earliest time I can remember I have never in my life made up my mind to accomplish anything without succeeding in the attempt. I want you to bear that in mind when I tell you that I have made up my mind to be, well, to place you in the highest position possible to any American woman. With your help I can accomplish that, as I have accomplished everything else. Oh, Ed, you frighten me. I am content as we are. Your ambition is eating you up. For myself, life has brought me—no, it is you that have brought me all, and more than all. I only want this, clasping her arms about him and pressing him close. I would give up everything for you, Ed, and it is for your sake that I want you to give up all further ambitions for me. You do not care for these things, dear, except for my sake and I care for nothing except to have you love me. You are great and good. You do not need honors. Let us let them alone. I cannot, Helen. I might, but for you. I do not know. It is my nature to go forward. I cannot stand still. But I might, if it were not for you. How can I rest when I remember that there is one woman in Washington whose place is so exalted that she is held exempt from the duty of returning calls, and that woman is not my Helen? I tell you, I must work out the plans I have formed, and I need your help. Now let me explain. I'll spare you every detail I can and keep to the bare outline. Go on, she says. I like you to tell me stories, Ed, and you haven't told me many of late. Your business has taken you away so much till I have almost come to hate business. Brain feels a little sting in this reminder, which Helen has not meant to put there, but he is too intent upon his purpose to pause for its removal. I have worked already at this thing, dear, night and day for months. I have made alliances in all directions, in every quarter of the country. 
I have set every force at work which can be in any way controlled. The next step is to produce a break here. This administration is the obstacle in my way, and I mean to break it down. Oh, Edgar, exclaims Helen, less in protest against a proposal which startles and shock her a little, than in admiration of the superb audacity of the man who sits holding her hand while he announces a purpose seemingly so stupendous. Brain continues, scarcely noticing the interruption. Yes, and I have that practically arranged too, except for one thing. I must produce the break by getting the coming presidential appointments, the most important of the whole term in some respects, rejected by the Senate. There are three men in the Senate who must make the fight their own in order to make the break in the party irreparable, except by the retirement of the President from the contest for nomination at the end of the term. These men are privately interested in the whiskey tax bill, which is certainly lost in committee unless I force its passage. I've been working at that for two months and have not yet succeeded. I want your help in that. But, Edgar, you know I don't understand politics, or— It's not necessary that you should. Heaven forbid that you ever shall. The only obstacle is Everett. He is chairman of the committee that has the bill in charge. He can report it favorably, and if I could induce him to do it, I could manage the rest. But I cannot. I have exhausted my resources of argument and persuasion, and he will not yield. It has worried me more than I like you to know, dear. I have said nothing because I didn't want to trouble you. But you can help me now, if you will. Helen looks up, elated. I can help? I'm glad of that, Ed. But it seems funny to think of my helping in business, doesn't it? With a little laugh. Brain is so intent on the matter that he only replies by a pat of the hand. He continues, Yes, you can help. I will tell you what I want you to do. Everett is fascinated with you. He hardly left your side tonight, and when he did, his eyes followed you. Everett is the only one whose support I must have now. You must get this for me. You can do it. "'Why, Ed?' she stares at him inquiringly. "'What could I do, dear?' For a moment Edgar looks annoyed. This is becoming a little awkward, for a husband. He starts to speak, then hesitates for a moment, then begins, "'Your woman's cleverness should prompt you, Helen. You understand little politic devices to a considerable extent.' It is only necessary that you enlarge upon it in a smaller field. Everett will call, of course. There is no reason why he should. She is looking at him. Not call as often as he chooses, nor why he should not choose to call often, nor why you should not use your influence to our advantage, to the end of gaining his support for me. Do you understand? He ceases. There is absolute silence. Helen is still looking at him. 
it is not comfortable for one's wife to look at one under all circumstances she speaks hesitatingly you you mean for me to to try and attract everett in order to cajole him into doing your will in this there is bewilderment disgust astonishment expressed in her voice she looks somewhat scandalized brain laughs a little uneasily yes that is about it she remains on her knees looking at him for a moment then slowly rises there is indignation expressed in every movement of her body she looks hurt humiliated insulted she says excitedly you don't know what you are saying this miserable business whatever it is has gone to your head i i i she stammers in excitement brain rises and speaks entreatingly no i know what i'm asking of you it is not pleasant to be sure it hurts me worse than it can you but helen with a desperate impulse helen this has got to be done i must have everett's support things have come to a desperate pass there is no other way when i saw you controlling his every thought tonight it seemed like a sudden interposition of providence all the care and worry that have gripped me like a dragon those late weeks seemed to slip from me i knew if you would do this i was secure i appealed to you child if you love me you must consent to aid me in this it is your happiness your advancement as well as my own that i ask you to achieve i am satisfied i don't want to advance her eyes flash ominously helen helen brain holds out his hands to her you don't understand all you say you do want it if you were deprived of all this luxury and position it would ruin your happiness and yet a few years ago you said as you do now i don't want it could you live without it no not now but i could if i had never known it i you had to know it you should of all women in the world you are the best one fitted for command and for all that i am straining every nerve to gain for you i do not sleep an hour uninterruptedly i wake to plan and contrive after this end i eat mechanically i speak so except under circumstances when my words will count i make no acquaintance no friend save that i may turn him to account I deny myself honest affection in every association, that sentiment may never interfere at a critical hour. All this that I may see you where you deserve to be. I ask but one little thing of you. I implore it. This one effort on your part, and we have gained all. Helen, he is quivering with excitement. His eyes burn like coals of fire and grow dark and scintillating. The woman opposite him stands like a statue. There is not a vestige of color in her face. She turns slowly and motions him from the room without a word.
End of chapter 25 Recording by Roger Moline